Hello, welcome back to Paperback Readers. I'm Joe, that's Julie, and I'm right here for a summertime edition of our latest read, Thoughts There On. Summertime reading is the best reading. Well, you say that as someone who gets a summertime. For me, <laughs> it's just hot and I don't have any time to read. I was still impressed when you gave me your list of, like, I really thought that I was beating you this week because I've read so much. Like, I'm reading books in a day, snapping them out, and then you're like, oh, I read this and this and this and this, and I'm like, dadgummit. Well, it's 64-page uh, book on pop music, probably. It feels though. like cheating. All right, now go ahead. Tell us what you've been reading. <laughs> Not that you're bitter or anything. <laughs> okay, the first one I talked about last week, because I was reading it then and knew I would finish up, uh, The Double Life of Bob Dylan, A Restless, Hungry Feeling, 1941 to 1966, in case that's not enough title, by Clinton Halen. Um, that's a terrible title. It is a terrible title, and probably he didn't like the half of it, but uh, I'm a Bob Dylan nerd, self-confessed. And it's not a bad thing to be. No, I, I hope not. But one of the uh, downsides of being a Bob Dylan nerd is you probably read Bob Dylan books, and... I'm just going to flat out lay it on the line. There aren't very many good ones. Um, despite the fact that Dylan, more than anybody else, inspires literary types to obsess in his work. I just want to say, I think being a Bob Dylan nerd, by definition, means that you are a harsh critic of anything anybody else wants to say about <laughs> Bob Dylan. <laughs> well, it is funny. I told you because... The books about Bob Dylan, and, and by about Bob Dylan, I mean attempting to envelop any kind of critical view of Bob Dylan, which is something Halen's doing here. It's not just straight, oh, he went here and then he went there. There is some of that. But when you write critically about Bob Dylan, to me, you come off one of two ways. One of them, I think, is best exemplified by the late Paul Williams, who I genuinely liked some of his stuff, but I never escaped the feeling that everything he said, he just, gosh darn, really wanted Bob Dylan to like him. And you can't do that. Well, I was just about to say, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with wanting that, somebody that to like it you? That sways his <laughs> critical convictions. Yes. If you are trying to write critically, you cannot write with For hoping your that your subject will appreciate it. Yeah. And, and I think Paul did that. This uh, is why I don't write critically. This is not to say he didn't connect sometimes, but it kind of made it so that when Paul wanted to rave about something, generally, I enjoyed what he said. But sometimes he would rave about things that didn't really deserve being raved about. Right, right. Uh, and, and that's just how it is. On the other side, Mr. Halen, who is probably the foremost quote-unquote Dylanologist out there. Uh, and the problem is, I, I sometimes in this book and in his other work felt like, I'm not sure he thinks Bob Dylan's ever done anything right yet. <laughs> um, and admittedly, Dylan is ripe for second-guessing. Nobody else has been as public in creating and recreating and altering and rearranging and amending their work as Bob Dylan. Nobody has been quite as mysterious and yes. secretive in his personal life and managed to be so mysterious and continually well, secretive. Well, and intentionally create his own mythology, which yes. is one of the things that drives Halen nuts. Uh, and I will break here long enough to say that the one great Bob Dylan book is... Chronicles by we Bob Dylan. We talked about that one last week. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, that said, I, I'm willing to admit that the vast majority of that book lies somewhere between slightly embellished and completely made up. Uh, I would not take it as authoritative biography, uh, but but as a an emotional memoir, it's it's brilliant. Now, 
All that said, Clinton Halen, great writer, knows his stuff, just wants to navel gaze so much. It just feels like one long slam on Dylan. And that's not what I came for. But you knew this about Clinton Halen's books, and yet you bought it anyway. I did. Well, I mean, he's kind of the authoritative guy. <laughs> but this was a bad sign from the start. When I pick it up in the first chapter, he's tearing apart other biographers. And I'm like, just just don't. Just write your book. Forget what they did right or wrong or said or didn't say. You do you. Is Stay there, in your lane. Is there actually any joy for you in reading anything about Bob Dylan? <laughs> You're saying I'm the Clinton Halen of Bob Dylan biographers? Is that what it comes to? I mean, there are some that I like more than others. Uh, and, and now that I've been challenged on it, uh, for next time I'm going to come up with a couple of other. Okay, Sean Wylance's Bob Dylan in America is a good one. Grail Marcus's book on the basement tapes, which has come out under several different names. The Old Weird America is the one I remember. Those are two off the top of my head that I'm like, those are good Bob Dylan critical books. Well, there's at two. least there's something. What else is on your list? Anyway, before I went <laughs> down that rabbit hole, American Pop was our latest uh, journal through the uh, the saga of the, the musical genres. And you know, it was a good one. I still, for my money so far, the ones we've read, the R&B one is the best. We're doing country now. And the country one feels a little half-baked, mostly because I'm coming off of having watched the Ken Burns series. So when the, the fellow or lady who wrote the country one makes some broad overgeneralization, I'm like, ah, 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 I know better. <laughs> Ken Burns taught me more than this. So anyway, we'll, we'll leave that oh there. American gosh. Pop is fine. It's a good series. I love the playlists. That is a cool feature. You reading about music and then talking about what you've read oh, about music man. is one of... My chief joy is because it is so funny. <laughs> That's painful. Okay, so then the next one, lo and behold, it seems almost like I found a theme. Read one called John Lennon, 1980, The Last Days in the Life by Kenneth Womack. So here you go. <laughs> Start the, the harps and the, the angelic tones here. Yeah, I thought this was a really good book. It was really interesting. Uh, Lennon's last days wasn't something I had a lot of knowledge about. My conception was that he, you know, he was in this kind of self-imposed exile. He and Yoko uh, had Sean, and he'd kind of withdrawn from the music world. And I just took that to mean he sat around the Dakota all day and didn't do anything. And this book was interesting just because I realized pretty quickly that wasn't true. He was going all over the place. Uh, I mean, he wasn't doing a ton of stuff, but... You know, it wasn't like he just sat there and, and watched grass grow until they came out with Double Fantasy. So that was really interesting. Um, good description on the music. Uh, this was Lennon's last, sadly, creative period here and, and the songs he comes up with. I mean, Double Fantasy has some great songs. Woman, Watching the Wheels, Starting Over, Beautiful Boy. A lot of the, the most quoted Lennon solo songs are on that album. And, and Womack did a good job of, of explaining how the album came to be. But the thing that stood out the most to me, and I thought this was beautiful uh, in terms of a creative decision, he gets to the end of John Lennon's life, and he does not name the person who assassinated John Lennon, and he does not dwell at any length on the means by which it took place. He just brings you up to that event and then has a short epilogue kind of closing out the story. And I thought that was incredibly appropriate um, because we're in a culture that glorifies 
violence and terrible things so much. It was obviously a conscious decision by Womack and one that I was just like, you know what? That's exactly what you should do because why, why is that person even worth naming? Um, you know, they, they did what they did, but John Lennon's what we're here for. And a really good book. Really, really enjoyed it. Um, I'm just very glad that you had at least one book this week. There you go. It didn't let me down. Well, and and Helen is interesting. I just, just, I just want to say, stop it, stop it, settle down, quit complaining. You know, (laughs) by complaining, ironically (laughs) enough. Exactly what I am. The curmudgeon complaining about the curmudgeons. No, it's okay. You have to. (laughs) And everybody likes what they like, and there are lots of books that I've shouted back at. You've heard me and seen me throw them across the room. So <laughs> sometimes, you know. all right. Sometimes. Which, what's your last? And one? then, uh, in a totally different vein, live right and find happiness. Although beer is much faster, by Dave Barry. Uh, now this, you've been a Dave Barry fan since you could read. I think. I don't know. I remember discovering Dave Barry and Dave Barry's best one is the American history one. It's uh, Dave Barry slept here. That's the one that, that I, you know, it might be a desert Island book for me. It's so, <laughs> so funny. I think this was not groundbreaking. It was not the best Dave Barry stuff. The, the probably the most interesting part is he tells a, a fairly long story about going to Russia with Ridley Pearson. Um, so this is, Fairly recent, but not super recent. I mean, I'm thinking 2000s, but the the cultural snags and snafus that he gets into are, are incredibly interesting. And that, that, that was probably the part that I was most like, oh, cool stuff, Dave Barry. But, you know, he, he's full of sly tickles to the fancy and all that. And, uh, <laughs> you know, typical work. Yeah. All right. Well, I um, started out my week. Oh, by finishing up The Bomber Mafia by Malcolm Gladwell, which you talked about a couple weeks ago on the podcast. Mm -hmm. Malcolm Gladwell's newest book, and it is about um, bomber planes in World War II. And it was a section of World War II that I really didn't know very much about. Love World War II um, histories. Love fiction that's set in that time frame. My grandfather fought in Europe in World War II. It's, It's just always been very interesting to me. But... Um, my grandfather told me one time he was on his way to the Pacific and then he didn't have to go. And so the Pacific part of it is not something that I have known as much about or had as much interest in it, interest in, but the bomber mafia was useful in that it explained why specific parts of the Pacific theater were so important, why the Pacific battles were so difficult and so deadly and why they were such an important turning point in the war. Mm-hmm. I really liked this book because he focused on this one particular topic the whole time. I think that was your criticism of it. You have enjoyed in his other books the way he brings together many different things yeah. together on one theme, and you're trying while you read to figure out how they're all connected. This one you you knew from the beginning. This is there are the characters. How are how are the people involved going to be connected together with this one big thing, really? Mm-hmm. But um, I it was a short book. I really really enjoyed just having the story. Yeah, yeah, and that's what he does well. I haven't told you this, but I found it interesting uh, going around social media some uh, the other day, and I saw a bunch of people ripping it. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> uh, but but. It was an odd criticism to me because the the suggestion seemed to be that somehow he glorified kind of the mass bombing uh, that took place in the Asian theater. And and I don't think he glorifies it at all. I felt like he was the one saying, gosh, this was 
yeah. really, really bad. No, but but that, was it a necessary thing? I mean, you, that's, that's, that was the question at the heart of yeah. it. Um, and he had these two different generals, yeah. one coming from the school of we um, want to change the way that war has been fought mm-hmm. um, by making sure that we focus on um, these uh, important things for industry or important things for fighting. Like you, if you're going to go in, pick a factory that's really important and bomb that factory, mm-hmm. do not hit civilians, do not get... Anything except that one target that will just cause them to shut down industry. We will save so many lives and we'll end war faster. So you got this one guy with that. And then you have the other general who's just like, no, bomb anything. Bomb everything. And that's LeMay, yeah. Yeah, and so it it was the difference in their two styles. I didn't, honestly, I didn't feel like he glorified or really for himself necessarily even chose a side. Yeah, I think he just said this was a dilemma. This This is is how this guy did it. This is how this guy did it. And then he leaves you with the question, so this is the one that won the war, but which one is right? Yeah. And he doesn't even really answer that question at all. So I don't know. I feel like if you feel like, if you feel like he glorified death and bombing civilians, you only read one half of the book. Yeah, yeah, that would. That would sum up what I felt. Yeah. It was an odd criticism, but... Anyway, people do what they do. They do. The next two that I read were rereads. Um, the first one was The Almost Sisters by Jocelyn Jackson. It was in my mind because we talked about Jocelyn Jackson's latest book, Mother May, May I, mm-hmm. a few weeks ago. And um, I, her Southern fiction will always be my favorite. I love her thrillers that she's come out with over the last couple of years, but I absolutely adore her Southern fiction. We mentioned this one, The Almost Sisters, is the story of Leia, who is a comic book artist who hooks up with Batman at a Comic-Con and then finds out she is going to have his baby. Um, And Batman was black. This is an interracial baby that she's going to be raising in the South. She finds this out at the same time that um, her whole family starts to fall apart and she has to move even deeper into the South to try to help them and then figure out how to pull all the pieces of her world together. It's not what, it, it's not really a comfort read. It deals with big issues. It deals with rape. It deals with racial issues. Um, it deals with the kind of world that we want to live in and the kind of world we want our kids to have. And yet her writing for me always feels like the best kind of comfort reading. Does that make sense? Well, she she's her never style, afraid her... to take on difficult tactics, but or, or, or not tactics, difficult topics. Right. I don't mean to say, but, and so but she it's handles these with well with grace yeah. and with um, yeah. it, it puts you in a position where you're forced to grapple with how you want to deal with these situations, and yet the way she writes, I feel like when I open one of her books and I slip into the first couple sentences, it's like. Um, it, it feels like honey. Like that's how her, her words are. They're just, sure. they're smooth. Sure. They're flowing. I love it. I swallowed this in a day. And then um, I read again, Love It First by Kate Claiborne. I talked about this one. Gosh, the second it came out, I think I got it. So I'm not going to go back into that one too deeply again. This is the story of um, a home in Chicago and two different people who are living in apartments in this home and um, how they deal with the um, what seems like the end of both of their worlds caused by each other. Um, it's an excellent book as well. Then I read Good Company by Cynthia Dieprix Sweeney. I have no idea if I said that middle. It's going to guess Dupree, but okay. I have no idea either. Anyway, um, this book reminded me a lot of Ask Again Yes 
Do you remember when we read that mm-hmm. one? Sure. Um, it's a story of marriage, and it's a story of friendship. Um, one of the main characters is looking for a photograph of her daughter to give to her on her high school graduation when she finds the picture in an envelope with her husband's wedding ring, which he told her years ago was at the bottom of a pond. So how did it get here? Why did he lie? What does this mean for her marriage and for her friendships? Because as it turns out, her very best friend is the only other person besides her husband who knows exactly what happened Mm. with this story. Um, So it was a really excellent book. I had heard many people say what a good book it was, and for some reason it had just slipped under my radar, but this was fabulous. The last book that I read is Finding Freedom, a cook's story, um, Remaking a Life from Scratch by Erin French. I picked this one up because I love food memoirs. I think they're absolutely wonderful. And those were my favorite parts of this book. Erin French runs um, a restaurant called The Lost Kitchen in the town of Freedom, Maine. So you've got a nice little um, play on words for that title. She tells her life story of how she came to be really totally untrained chef, just a cook who runs this restaurant and all of the obstacles that she had to overcome in the way. She writes really beautifully about food. Those were my favorite parts of the book where she described food. She talked about her restaurant, how she set it up. That I just, I want to read about food. I want to read everything about food. So that was <laughs> really too much fun. temptation for me. I like it, but I have to be careful. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, anyway. All right. That leads us into the joint read that we had. We told you last week we would be looking at How Lucky by Will Leach, which I mentioned last week. And Joe, you read it this week, so do you want to refresh everybody's memory on what it's about? Yeah, Will um, came into my consciousness for his work with Deadspin, and I read one of his, uh, he wrote a nonfiction sports book, and I completely blanked on the title, unfortunately, but it it was a good one. Um, I I really, I remember enjoying it, but I don't remember a lot else, unfortunately. But but in this book, um, I believe it's his first novel. It's the first one I'm aware of. Uh, and and he has a narrator who is disabled, uh, who one day sees something or thinks he sees something that is astonishing, that is unique, that is potentially criminal, uh, that suddenly then pops up in the news. And this guy who's led this very insular, you know, tiny circle life suddenly finds himself in the middle of a big old pot of mess um, with mildly catastrophic consequences, to say the least. Uh, But just, this is another one. I I told you the two books that came to mind for me uh, that that this reminded me of were Mother May I. Not that, you know, it it was similar just in that magneticness of you didn't want to put the book down, you just want to flip the next page and see what happens next. I remember um, you woke, when I got up one morning, you said, well, I was up until one o'clock. I had to finish your book. And same deal, same (laughs) deal. Yeah, way too late reading the book because I just couldn't put it down. Uh, So you had that, but the other was The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. Um, which I read some years back. Of course, the narrator of that is is autistic. So there, there's some interesting, you know, you kind of change the conventions here when you start out with a narrator who has some physical limitations. 
There are some things that, that he's just not going to be able to do or that he's not going to be able to do easily. But I thought that Will Leach did a really good job from the beginning of the story, first of all, setting up Daniel's voice, who he is as a person, just mm-hmm. as a human being, and then describing what are the limitations through which we are going to see this story. Yeah. And it was it was masterfully done. Oh, completely. And I'm not going to give away too much here, but in the, the notes after the book, Will says that his his child son's best friend has the same condition that, that Daniel does, and that was kind of his portal into this world of, hey, it might be an interesting thing to have a character who, who has this issue. Uh, so, you know, by by doing that, he'd obviously done his homework. I mean, it... it uh, you know, one of the things we've talked about, obviously, is the, the value of, of kind of diversifying your reading life and not just... Sticking to one little narrow lane, like right. I don't know rock and roll books for me. <laughs> what can I say? But but it really it always is a thing. You you can, if not put yourself in the shoes, at least come away with a slightly more profound understanding of somebody's life that's different than your own. And that was one of the unanticipated benefits here. The other thing is, it was just a beautiful book in the end. It was affirming. It was fun. It was interesting. They'll make a movie of this. They should make they a movie. They really of have this. to make a movie of this. I it's mean, there will be some challenges in it, but it will be a great movie if they do it. Um, you and I talked about the themes that ran through this, and kind of, I enjoyed this book all the way through, mm-hmm. but it wasn't until the very end when I knew that this was a book that you also needed to read too. Yeah. Because one of the things that Will Leach does a really, really good job with here is bringing you into your own life and thinking about how do you really want to live it? How yeah. safe do you want to be? Yeah. How much will you risk um, for the kind of life that you actually want to live? Mm-hmm. Which is a question that ultimately every one of us um, has to ask. We're, we all have some limitations of some kind. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very existential, though. It's a very defining thing, and he just sneaks you into it. And yet, at the very end of the book, you pull back and go, oh, I didn't really think about that. But We also talked about um, the idea that this book presents, which is we all, most of us say we want to make a difference. We really want to do something big. We want to leave a mark in the world, but we look beyond ourselves. Mm-hmm. We think that our own lives are not significant, that to do something big, we have to create something outside. But where Daniel makes a huge difference is using where he is uniquely positioned. His job that he has online gives him a ton of resources and abilities in this particular situation. His everyday life and the things that he just naturally does going about his day are the things that put him uniquely in the position to be able to help in this difficult situation. So how, how many things in my life have I missed being able to make a difference in because I'm looking for something big to knock me on the head falling out of the sky instead of saying, here's where I am, this is where I am uniquely positioned, and just using what I have there. And the people who work with him. Mm -hmm. We talked about them. He has caretakers who come in. He has a couple who come in, a couple of people who come in throughout the night mm-hmm. and help like, like turn him over. They make sure he's doing okay. They watch out for him. He has someone who comes in during the day. He has his best friend yeah. who comes in. All these, these people who are not blood related to him, most of them are paid to be there. 
And yet they are also uniquely positioned to to make a big difference. Yeah. If they choose to. And you and I talked about how I mean, he he talks in the book constantly, Daniel does. Oh, you know, they're paid to do this. They're paid to do to help me, and that's great, and I'm glad that they are. But just because you're paid to do something doesn't mean that it doesn't matter to you. Even if it is a job where you're just up all night and you're just in the house to turn a guy over yeah. and you're doing it maybe to make some extra cash to save for something else you want to do, doesn't mean that that job doesn't matter to you. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're heroic on their own level. And, and okay, so, so one of the cool things here is it SMA, am I getting that right? I'm, I'm talking out of memory here, the condition that Daniel has. It's, it's a right. muscular atrophy. It's been a couple weeks for me. Yeah, so. in, in essence. But he's losing his, his physical functions, and he has basically lost speech. He can kind of make some guttural noises, but he can't talk right. in a conventional way. Right, but, he but, has his iPad, and he can yeah, communicate so he can type and it will do, right. Yeah, right. But... Most of his true communication, and, and this is a cool thing Leach does, where mm -hmm. early in the book, Daniel says, we've learned this. Me and the people who are closest to me, I can look at them, they can look at me, it passes from one of us to the other of us. Mm -hmm. So he has these conversations that are entirely taking place that way, uh, which is a cool thing, and, and yet, you know, I'm not sure it would be crystal clear, but I have no doubt that the general you know, idea would be conveyed most of the time. And it's it's kind of a, a fascinating thing. These people who are closest to him, he has this, uh, you know, it's almost telepathy that, that, you know, they communicate without, you know, the conventional modes of communication. And that, that's pretty cool. It, it is, yeah. But it's so much to like here. Yeah, the, the way that his, his de facto family uh, come around him when, when he needs them, uh, the way that his vocation and, and he's a, a like customer service rep for a budget airline. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's some inherent humor in that. He <laughs> basically gets angry people showing their rear end <laughs> on the internet and he's the one who has to diffuse them or ignore them or, you know, whatever he has to do. Uh, which is, is a humbling reminder yet again, that, that when you're at your worst, there's somebody who's on the other end of it, you know, uh, and they're people too, but. The title of this book is perfect. Mm -hmm. Early in the book, when he is relating what Marjani has said about how lucky she is, mm -hmm. I thought, that's a terrible title. Like, if that's why you named the book this, because she basically says she is so lucky because she gets to witness people's death. And I thought, oh, gosh, is this going to be, is this going to break my heart? And it did break my heart. But, but in a, in a different totally way. different way from yeah. what I thought. And by the end of the book, I was like, oh, my gosh, yes, this, this title is amazing. Will Leach just really crafted, in all aspects, a really, truly excellent work of fiction here. Yeah, one of the best books I've read this year. Yeah, it was excellent. Okay, so next time around, it's summertime uh, with, with COVID restrictions lifting. disappearing or easing up, lifting. Yeah, uh, you got a lot more people traveling. We're not doing a ton of it ourselves, but uh, some are. And then if we can't join them physically, we'll join them in spirit. So we are going to go back to one of our all-time favorite travel writers, Mr. Bill Bryson himself. If you have never read Bill Bryson, please join us um, on this book for next week. Bill Bryson is an American who traveled to Britain, what, like right after college? 
Yeah. Got a job there, married a woman there, and stayed and had kids there. And then he and his wife eventually moved back to America. All of this provided great fodder for his travel writing as he was able to write quite a lot about being an American in Britain. And then a British transplant back home to America. He's hilarious. When we were in England... We were in Bath, remember, and we got our little headsets to hear the tour. Yeah, he narrated. He narrated. That's right. I'd I mean, that. he's um, he has written so many amazing things. The one that we're going to pick back up with next week is called "Neither Here Nor There," and it is a story of his travels in Europe. If you want another one of his, "The Life and Times of the Thunderbolt Kid" is his that's memoir. one of your favorites. But the it's one, beautiful. the one you should read with us right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> neither yeah. here nor there. That's, <laughs> that's what, neither here nor there. <laughs> that's what we're well, going to talk about for next I week. I myself up, <laughs> which is good because nobody else is. <laughs> if you have read it. Or you've read anything else by Bill Bryson and you'd like to share some opinions about that with Walk us? Walk in the Woods, America oh, 1927. I, mean, I don't think you've read them all, but I have. I think yeah. the only thing of his I have not read, and it's on the shelf and I just haven't gotten to it, is his tiny little African memoir. I haven't hmm. read that one yet. Okay. But everything else, it's all in there on the shelf. So let us know what you think about Bill Bryson or about this book. You can email, email us at paperbackreaderspod at gmail.com or drop us a note on Instagram or Twitter. On Instagram, we are at paperbackreaderspod. On Twitter, we are pbackreaderspod. That's it. That's all of it. You got it down. It's only taken us 20-odd episodes to get to that point. All right. (laughs) But anyway, as ever, thanks so much for joining in with us and keep reading.